Welcome to the Curious Humans Podcast. I'm your host, Johnny Miller. Hello. I think I might have just found the most curious human alive. Anna Starkey is a genuine 21st century Renaissance woman. She's had a, a zigzagging career that's led her from lecturing on antimatter, working as the director of Impossible Projects, to stand-up comedy sketches, producing live art shows for global cinema, gracing the TED stage with a great talk called Do Not Press the Big Red Button. And she's now working as the creative director for an experiential museum called We the Curious, which is based in Bristol. And I think her life is just a testament to embracing curiosity as a career path. So we start off talking about her passion for windmills her childhood dream of being an astronaut and then we really geek out and get curious about curiosity itself in the middle of Finsby Park in London. So without further ado, I give you the interview with Anna Starkey. So I'm sitting here in Finsby Park, um, the, the sound of the wind, with, with, Anna, with Anna Starkey. And we've been talking for, for quite a while and having, having a really interesting conversation. And I realized that I should probably sit down and, and actually hit record and, and get some of this down. So I'd love to dive in with the question that I ask all of the, all of the podcast guests. And I've got a hunch for what I think the answer might be. But the question is, were you curious as a child? And, and if so, what were you curious about? That's a really good question, which requires me to have any sort of long-term memory. Um, yes, I think I was definitely curious as a child. Um, and I was curious about, <sighs> I think about almost everything. I think I was fantastically lucky in that um, my parents kind of, I think maybe because they, they didn't go, they didn't go to university, that they really kind of valued like finding out about stuff um so yeah i think a little bit of that but also i was quite independent and i would go off on my own and just kind of have little adventures um and i read quite a lot of stuff and i think i was quite uh confident like as a kid so i would just kind of chat and find things out so yeah i would say curious about almost everything i think space was a thing for me quite early on mm. and windmills oh really I don't know why. Um, I think it was the first thing I ever, like, when I started to draw, I just started drawing windmills. I was really fascinated by their whole being. Yeah. It's appropriate as the wind is probably, like, whipping around the microphone <laughs> right now. <laughs> so um, that's, that's amazing. I, I love windmills as well, actually. Um, but what I was going to ask, and we, we were talking a bit, a bit about this earlier, was you mentioned that you, were, you wanted to be an astronaut when you were, when you were younger. How did that come about? And, and what kind of happened there? I don't remember what the trigger was for wanting to be an astronaut. I do remember I would regularly have a dream in which some sort of space vehicle would appear. And this is from when I was super young. So I don't know where I got this from. I must have watched some telly or film or something. Um, and I was just very obsessed with the idea of kind of not belonging to Earth and going out and seeing stuff so yeah I can't put I can't put my finger on 
on what triggered the astronaut thing, but there was, I've always had this slight thing about also a kind of mission control setup, which I think maybe why I kind of enjoy like producing live TV, because you sit in this bank of screens and buttons and there's kind of cool stuff being triggered all the time and loads of people communicating and a team all working together to make this extraordinary kind of endeavor happen. So I think there's also, as I was a bit older, there's also something about that which really kind of makes the hairs on my arms stand on end. I always cry when I see a rocket launch. Always. I find it a very emotional experience. Um, uh, and I don't mean like being in person at a rocket launch, I mean just like watching it on a screen. Um, so yeah, I can't pinpoint it, but it's, it's, it's always this, it's, it's the big picture that you get to see. Mm. No, I, I love that. And part of what you were talking about earlier was, um, I think we've both had these kind of zigzag careers and I was, I was fascinated by the just insane diversity of the different projects and different things that you've done. So I guess I'm, I'd love to hear a bit about how that led you being curious about curiosity itself and eventually kind of onto the TED, the TED TEDx stage talking about curiosity and now this, uh, this museum, um, the, the we, we the Curious. So I think it's, I think you only ever like noticed this stuff in retrospect. It was never a conscious thing as I was going through stuff. I think I was, I've been fantastically privileged in like the education and that I've had. And then I've also been very lucky in that for the most part, I've been able to like follow my heart around stuff that I find interesting. Um, I really vividly remember like when I had some work experience very early on, this kind of realization that people kind of went to offices and sat there kind of forever in the same place doing very similar things. And this kind of, this horror void kind of overcame me. And I was like, I, I don't even know how I'm going to kind of exist in this. So I had this kind of freelance life bouncing around stuff that I just found interesting at the time. And for the most part, looking back, I realized that in almost every single job shift that I made, I didn't have the faintest idea how to do that job when I started. <laughs> so, and that was like going from being a script editor to then going and like being a researcher on the BBC proms and then like producing telly. Um, I was always massively fortunate in that there was nearly always a really amazing, inspiring mentor who was there to be generous and to kind of, um, to see something in me that I hadn't, sort of had the chance to realize yet so i really value and kind of respect people who play that role in life who are willing to give their kind of their time as a mentor to people so i've been really lucky that where wherever i've been i've kind of landed up with some of those people um but i think the reason that i was able to kind of just go ah i think i'm gonna go and do this thing next was was actually not because i'm particularly brave or interesting or particularly talented or skilled at any of those things it was because i was really curious to see what it was it would be like and and i didn't realize that at the time but i think i think that being curious about something removes your fear you stop thinking about all the things of oh well what if the negative side of what if oh what if i do this and i'm bad at it what if it goes wrong yeah. but just going okay well i'm interested to see what happens if i land myself in for example the world of classical music um which i know a bit about but really not that much um, to start with um and that that becomes an exciting adventure and actually, I kind of, I also realised that I'm the sort of person that thrives off that initial kind of tingly feeling of something new. Mm. And I'm, I think that's, I don't know where that's come from. And again, I feel very lucky that I have that because I think it removes a lot of barriers to stuff. Mm. Um, and it means you can try things out. Yeah. 
Yeah, I so many questions that I want to dive into from that. Um, it's interesting that you bring up the importance of having really good mentors, and I I can think back to my time at at Durham where I had a, an amazing economics tutor called Matteo, and um, if, if you're listening, um, just so so grateful for having that person that almost sees potential in you that sometimes you can't see in yourself and I think maybe that's part of what gives you the confidence in order to to be able to sit with some of the uncertainty that these kind of like zigzagging career paths do take and I think it requires a lot of those courageous leaps and those courageous leaps require that ability to kind of navigate on the go and and learn as you're going as opposed to having everything figured out when you when you kind of jump off so I really yeah I really relate to a lot of that um, one thing that I w wanted to kind of touch on um, was in your in your TEDx talk, you talked about how there's different types of curiosity, and based on some of the the research that you've that you've done and some of the reading you've done, could you maybe talk a little bit about the different types of curiosity that that exist? Yeah. So, um, I mean, this the stuff that I've gleaned has really been from reading papers and books by people who've kind of researched this deeply and, and have kind of a real kind of active practice around understanding curiosity. Those, those people are few and far between, interestingly. Um, but yeah, there's, there's all sorts of things around curiosity. One, one is this idea that there's this thing called diversive curiosity, which is the kind of, um, we all have it. And it's that kind of sort of quick, quickly satisfied curiosity which i think is has turned into the kind of clickbait kind of stuff that we get online so and it, and it and it's the it's the kind of curiosity that's that's satisfied by oh i wonder how many likes i've had on this instagram picture and then you're kind of done and then you're on to the next thing or um oh i've forgotten the name of this actor let's just google it quickly we've got it i'm satisfied so it's very short term and it doesn't kind of it doesn't lead to a, a kind of um a longer a longer deep dive into stuff it's 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 transient there's nothing wrong with that per se but if you look at the kind of the big i think the big discoveries and paradigm shifts and big kind of progress that's made in kind of humanity that really comes from this epistemic curiosity which is um a kind of willingness and a commitment to um, being curious over the long term and generating more knowledge and more understanding as you go and really going quite deeply into things. Um, and I think that the greatest thinkers of, of history and our current time are the people that kind of nurture that epistemic curiosity practice, if you like. And I do think you have to practice it to kind of get in there and it's probably connected to like being in flow on something. Um, so there's that kind of curiosity, which is this real kind of knowledge generating curiosity um, and knowledge gathering and there's um, someone somewhere has described curiosity as the knowledge emotion which I, I really love That's amazing. because it is a feeling isn't it you yeah. kind of you want to know something and for some people that might be an uncomfortable space like oh I don't know the yeah. thing and that doesn't feel great yeah. and for other people it's a kind of it's quite a galvanizing oh, I really need to find that out now yes. or I really need to explore that because it's not always about getting the answer it's about the process of exploring it yeah. um, and I just I find I think that's great because actually we we often kind of separate the mind and body and we think about knowledge and intellect as being in the brain, but actually there's a really kind of and of course the brain is connected to the body. We all know all that now, but it is an emotional kind of desire thing. Mm -hmm. um, and what's greater than the kind of desire for finding stuff out? 
like as humans yeah yeah no that's that's so interesting and i love i love i love thinking about how um someone like einstein or, or da vinci or these people that we think of being these creative geniuses um we think of them as having very high iqs but i wonder if there would be a way to almost measure their levels of curiosity like do you think it would be possible to create a a cq like a curiosity quotient and somehow figure out like how you know if we could measure these different aspects of curiosity like we measure intellectual capacity would that enable us to to maybe value it more and to prioritize it yes um and someone has come up with a curiosity quotient and because my brain operates in curious mode unless in like information retention at all times i've forgotten the name so you're gonna to have to do that podcast thing where you like insert the facts and the edit of the name of this person but let's assume that you've got that i'll send it to you afterwards yeah, yes there is there is an existence i think a couple of different types of kind of curiosity quotients mm -hmm. and actually finding that people who've got a higher curiosity quotient um do better at school spend longer in education um however you want to kind of manage or, or, or measure the output of that so i think that's increasingly more important um than a pure iq um and it, and it reminds me of another type of curiosity that's sort of been identified or that you can talk about which is empathic curiosity which is also um curiosity for your fellow human beings yeah. um and i think that's where the kind of compassion comes in which is about um being curious about their well-being so not necessarily curious um in that sort of gossipy uh being nosy sense yeah, yeah okay yeah, yeah. um so yeah th there's the kind of gossipy interest and in, in being nosy in someone's personal affairs as opposed to a sort of curious nature about someone's well-being and and their place in the world mm. and and i think it helps us overcome cognitive bias which we all have mm. like it or not because mm. of the way the brain works mm. um if you're curious about someone upon meeting them, you're more likely to be able to overcome some of those initial cognitive biases about how they've dressed, how they speak, sure. all the rest of it. Sure. Um, so, yeah, there's there's something about that kind of that type of empathic curiosity, which is also about an emotional intelligence. So that kind of emotional quotient that also marries with the curiosity quotient and the intellectual quotient that I think kind of completes the whole. I think we've been very obsessed with kind of measures of intellect and academic kind of exam results and kind of numbered output. And I, I feel like it's time to shift to a new set of values that is more about people's emotional and curiosity-based kind of abilities. <clears throat> I love that idea of empathic curiosity. And I've, I've not heard the term before, but it reminds me of something that I think Jeremy Rifkin talks about, which is um, the empathy gap and how that occurs across geography and across time. So a kind of um, lack of ability to be curious about future generations and kind of the effect of our decisions at the moment on on them and also across cross geography and you know how people are living and and thriving or having a tough time in other continents and other parts of the world and i completely agree with you that if we could you know shift the needle even a one percent in the direction of being more empathically curious i can't imagine the world not being a better place um so are there any other from your kind of curious investigations into this literature on curiosity, were there any other findings that kind of surprised you or things which kind of stood out as being like, huh, that's interesting? Yeah, so, I mean, loads of people have tried, I say loads, interestingly, not as many as you might think in terms of people that have kind of been looking into curiosity. It seemed to be something that was researched 
uh, this guy called Berlin, um, like back in the 60s and 70s, and then kind of fell off a little bit. Um, but I think that the thing that has really surprised me lately was a researcher from the Netherlands who um, actually is looking at not different types of curiosity, but attitudes towards curiosity. Mm. Um, and she's found in some studies with some school children that actually their opinion of what curiosity is or is for is actually quite worrying, I think, in that they associate it with that negative kind of gossipy um, side of like prying into other people's business. Huh. And they don't associate curiosity with learning or education or anything to do with their kind of presence in school. Do you think that's because they've pissed off their parents by asking so many questions? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it might be. It might be. Because there's that stat there's that stat, isn't there, about I think it's like when you're five or six that you know you ask literally kind of hundreds of questions a day. And I think anyone who's a parent with young children kind of you, you genuinely <laughs> get very tired. And they're often the why questions which like you get down to the kind of atomic level of why and you're like, I literally don't know and nobody does. Um, so I totally get that. I get the kind of curiosity for <laughs> in young children um but yeah it's it's a bit sad if we're if we're not encouraging kids to think that curiosity is a thing that is going to help them in life mm. um mm. and that it's just reserved for that kind of playground kind of to and fro mm. i think that's a massive that's a massive gap in society if that's what people's perceptions of curiosity yeah is yeah (laughs) (laughs) and we we were talking a bit about this before hitting record and this idea that we're currently living in this curiosity deficit Mm. where um you know we have easy access to answers via things like google and and things like that but do you have a sense or maybe a theory as to why why curiosity has this kind of negative attitude associated with it or like where has this come from i'm not sure i mean i do think that um you know, our education system trains us, your hand goes up in class and the teacher wants an answer from you, not a question, because a question actually takes more time up and teachers have very little time to get through all the stuff they have to get through for, for the curriculum. So I think we've been trained from quite a long, young age and consistently sort of not to ask questions in that sense, but to have a ready answer. So I think I think there's some kind of negative association from that that it's not a kind of positive trait to nurture um there's the incredibly annoying um kind of popular saying that curiosity killed the cat which actually was nothing to do with curiosity i think from um what i've read it's more to do with the kind of old world word that is more to do with care um and which actually meant worry um so Mm. worry kills the cat well yeah we now know that stress and anxiety kind of does have very (laughs) negative effects so So um that's been a very pervasive kind of you know um urban myth um there's that side of it i think um and i think it's also partly to do with the way that we that we present kind of other worlds and other disciplines and other types of knowledge to each other. Mm. So it's nearly always, and I'm thinking particularly in science because that's kind of something I'm preoccupied with at the moment, mm. but we, we, will, we will tell someone the results of something in science mm. and we treat it like this kind of end point, mm. but we don't, we don't have the generosity or the time allocated to open up the process of science, which is the process of curiosity and asking questions and refining those questions and, mm. and iterating. Mm. Um, so I feel like curious process has been hidden away a lot of the time because mm. it, is, it is the thing that both artists and scientists are driven by, I think, to kind of make their inquiry about the world. Mm. And for the most part, you see the end product, you see the painting, um, you see the result at the end of a paper, but you are not party to 
the process that that person went through, mm. which is the really massive, messy, creative, mm. going down dead ends, starting again, banging your head against a wall mm. um, bit. That, that and, and so it's invisible. So then why would people value value that curious process? Because you, you, you don't get to encounter it. Mm. Yeah, that, no, that's super interesting. And for me, I've been, I've been thinking a bit about, you know, how would you design a curriculum that is fit for the future? Because, you know, as you were saying, our school systems are currently pretty broken if they're just teaching kids to kind of recite answers to things and not teaching them how to ask good questions. Um, so if you were to kind of um, hazard a guess, what might be some of these what might be a way to teach kids to value curiosity more or perhaps to ask better questions and to kind of be okay with sitting in that uncertainty of not knowing the answer and not being able to Google the answer straight away and actually pursuing this for more than, you know, more than a few minutes? Well, I mean, if we imagine we're in utopia and we're not kind of confined by the nat national curriculum and all that kind of stuff, I feel like it is, it is about starting it's about starting with their questions. So I think Finland have done away, at least whether it's the whole of Finland or whether it's some schools in Finland have done away with the curriculum. And it's entirely student-led learning. Mm. Um, and uh, someone that I've been lucky enough to work with, this guy called Nick Jones, has been a kind of um, a radical educationist. And he set up some schools in which um, the kind of the students and the teachers decide that week what they're going to be investigating or looking into um so it's not like kind of like oh, i'm going to maths at 10 and then i'm going to french at one um it, it starts with people's curiosity and interest and i think i think it's partly about having people who are confident to facilitate that because you have to be confident to kind of go where that's leading you um and i suppose to be maybe not generalists exactly, but people who are confident like working across disciplines and connecting ideas up. And I think a lot of people train to kind of teach one very specific subject and there's nothing wrong with that. There are loads of incredible teachers out there doing amazing things within the confines of the curriculum. Um, so yeah, I think, it's, I think it's about supporting and enabling and empowering kids. And this applies to adults as well, I think actually, um, to, to ask questions and for that to be a valid starting point rather than trying to get to an answer too quickly and then to have the sorts of people that can scaffold the question asking so that you can start to ask more questions but sort of towards a focus to, to an end point to a mean so actually you might start with quite a nebulous big question but then you start to hone it in towards something that for example in the sciences you can actually test and design an experiment around sure, yeah. or if you're in humanities something that you can well it's very similar actually something that you can you can manifest through some kind of some kind of form, whether you're kind of a visual artist or you're working with sound or there's some research question that you want to pose if you're in the social sciences. So I think it's about scaffolding those questions as you go along um, and giving kids the confidence to do that. Mm, I love that. Um, something that I've been thinking about is this idea that curiosity is, is the new career path and I think that for me, in the, the kind of the work that I've done with founders and with entrepreneurs, it seems like curiosity is often the birthplace of creativity and giving people that kind of um, creative confidence to scaffold those questions and to kind of design little experiments around what they're doing is, is really, really powerful. Um, and I was reading recently about this idea of, um, of centaurs, which I think we kind of touched on earlier, where 
um, a, a human is paired with an AI and the, the AI or the artificial intelligence are really good at finding out answers, but it's the role of the human that is to design those kind of creative constraints and those parameters for the, the artificial intelligence to kind of go crazy and spit out hundreds of or, or millions of different, different potential solutions. So it feels to me as if this is only going to get more and more and more important as we, as we go on. And there's this real urgent need to not only kind of um, change our education systems like this amazing school in Finland you're talking about, but also for people who have already graduated and are now in jobs. Um, you know, there's, there's this, uh, there's so many jobs are potentially going to be taken by automation. And there's this, there's a great quote by the author of, of Sapiens and he says that, you know, 10, 15 years from now, most of the jobs that people will want don't exist yet. And it's like, how, how do we, how do we train for a world which we don't even know what their jobs are going to be? And for me, it feels like curiosity is, is such a big piece of that. Yeah. Um, so I'm just, I'm just really interested to see where this space is going. And you, that, this is quite a long rambling uh, response, <laughs> but where I was going to was how are you tackling this with, um, with the museum that you're the creative di director of in Bristol? And what are some kind of tangible ways that you think that you're kind of um, helping society shift in that slightly more curious direction? Um, well, we're right at the start of this. So, um, like, come back to me in a couple of years when it's kind of been <laughs> it's kind of been running a bit further. But it's back to the question asking and it's about empowering people to ask questions in a public setting and be heard, which is the other important thing. Um, and so what we're doing is um, we, we've, uh, we're an interactive science centre, essentially, um, but we're shifting to really put people at the heart of that. So um, historically, as sort of curators of that setting, we might have decided, oh, OK, you know, it'd be really interesting to do an exhibit on magnetism. Um, well, great. But like, is that interesting to anybody else other than professionals inside that kind of science centre setting? Um, and we had this incredible space on our first floor which was called news and views and there was neither but what there was was um people writing their questions up on index cards and they were really personal and they were handwritten and framed in language that we would never use and the questions were sometimes funny sometimes quirky unexpected quite existential quite deep um and what i noticed when i started there three years ago was that we weren't really honouring or exploring that amazing engine of curiosity in the centre of our building through our programmes or our exhibits. Because mm. it's the sort of stuff that it's really hard to build an exhibit out of. Mm. Um, and one of the examples I like to give from this kind of archive was this question someone had asked about, um, if I take myself apart atom by atom, when do I stop being me? Well, there isn't a single interactive exhibit <laughs> on its own that is going to answer that question. Yeah, yeah. But what if you could explore that question for and with someone from all the different points of view that come up so that that touches on atomic physics and biology and philosophy and kind of like the nature of identity um and then it's about honoring the curiosity of that person and not going well that's a nonsensical question we can't answer that like there is no system by which you could take yourself apart atom by atom currently so we're not going there um and you know another question was asked which was how does the moon fly so historically, we might have corrected that question before we'd even started. But actually, if you start with where that person's curiosity is authentically coming from, then you've got a much more interesting conversation and you're much more likely to kind of have a relevant response to somebody's curiosity. Mm. So 
it's kind of as simple as that. Like we're, we're not, we haven't come up with some radical new method of uh, connecting with people other than let's start with where they're at and what, what their curiosity is driving and then explore it in all the ways that we can and have all these different lenses mm. that are kind of, that come to bear on, on this question that is about the intersection of science and humanity and culture and, and all the rest of it. Mm -hmm. So that's what we're trying to do. And we're trying to make sure that we go out and work with different people whose voices might not normally be heard in a science centre or a museum or a cultural institution mm. who might have decided for whatever reason um, and, and rightly so in some cases that that place is not for them they're not represented there that there's kind of barriers to them getting involved so um, we're trying to make sure that we kind of gather as many curious voices as possible mm. that's amazing and it reminds me of um, this idea of combinatorial creativity which is kind of connecting existing dots in new ways and it sounds like that's kind of exactly what you're doing with with people and and questions themselves you're kind of connecting existing questions but viewing them through new lenses or from different perspectives and i love i love that concept and i love the the sense of how little we know in certain areas as well and, and science as you were saying isn't this kind of fixed endpoint but this ongoing process of of almost expanding the boundaries of our own ignorance in some ways <laughs> yeah <laughs> um, yeah totally and, and and what i think is really really weird actually is that I think most most researchers have gone into science have done it because they're really excited about pushing pushing into the unknown. Yeah. Um, they didn't do it because they were so radically excited by the textbook of facts. I mean, that's fine. I, I'm quite excited by textbooks of facts. <laughs> um, but I think for the most part, you're driven, and particularly when research can be really difficult and sometimes monotonous and sometimes take you down dead ends, you've got to have like an emotional passion that's driving you. Yeah, yeah. And that is a that is about being a pioneer into the unknown. And I think, I think again, we don't talk about that enough. Mm. And the really exciting stuff is the kind of big picture questions. It's why I got into physics. It's like... Mm wow, we, we only know what 5% of the universe is made of. That's, that's incredible. Um, and someone, um, and I don't remember who it was, said uh, a, a quote about, we know more about the surface of the moon than we do about like our brain, which is literally between our ears. And so that's the stuff that's really galvanizing and being excited about being the person that could just kind of chip away a bit of knowledge mm. or even be the person that causes the paradigm shift that kind of busts a whole yeah. new kind of world open yeah. is it's really awesome. Yeah. So this feels like an appropriate time to drop in an, an Einstein quote that I've handily got written down here. And he says, then do not stop to think about the reasons for what you're doing, about why you're questioning. Curiosity has its own reason for existence. One cannot, one cannot help but be in awe when he contemplates the mysteries of eternity, of life, of the marvelous structure of reality. It is enough if one tries merely to comprehend a little of this mystery each day. Never lose a curiosity. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, I can't follow Einstein. Um, the guy, the guy, kind of had it had it nailed. Um, and his other curiosity quote, which I like, is, um, "I have no special talents. I am only passionately curious." Yeah. I don't quite buy that. He was clearly brilliant at maths and all that stuff about. <laughs> oh, I was really bad at like. Mm, I think he was pretty good at maths, but. Um, yeah, it's exactly that. Like, it, it feels like the most human thing to do is to kind of wonder about our place in the universe, that, that massive stuff. It does also remind me, 
the flip side of that is that in modern life, a lot of people don't have the luxury of being curious. Mm. So Einstein, I mean, you know, he was he was a pretty amazing individual, um, but he had the time and space, mm. pun intended, now I'm thinking about it, <laughs> Very good. Uh, to sit and think about this stuff and to really investigate it. And for a lot of people, like the urgency in life is like, how am I going to pay for the next bill? Where is the next meal coming from? Mm. So you're not, you don't have the time to sit around and be curious mm-hmm. um, about the kind of the wonders of the universe. And I, I remember going into um, a school in the middle of London when I was kind of working, kind of going around doing lectures on antimatter. Um, <laughs> uh, and, and I was kind of, I was banging on about, oh, isn't it amazing when you look up the stars? And, and the class were just like, no. And I, to start with, was quite frustrated. And I was like, well, I don't know where to begin. If you're not having the same basic instinct at like how incredible it is to look up the stars and think about everything, then I, I, I'm kind of stuck. But I mean, aside from the fact that in a city, you don't get to see the stars to start with. So they're like, well, no, occasionally we see a couple of pricks of light in the sky, like whatever. That's not very interesting. Um, and it, those things always cause me to remember that there is a bigger kind of social agenda about this, which is which is somehow lifting everyone up to be able to be curious mm. because it has been, and particularly in the past, you know, cabinets of curiosity, which were the, were the genesis of the early museums yeah. were put together by, um, you know, rich white men who got to travel the world and came back and showed off all the cool stuff that they found. Yeah. Um, the ones that were slightly more, uh, sort of, um, generous, uh, evolved that into the first museums where it was more of a kind of open sharing of kind of knowledge and artifacts and all kind of the rest of it. But um, curiosity, so actually harking back to your earlier question about why curiosity might have a bad rap. Um, I think it, sometimes it is the kind of the prevail of, of people who have, have the time mm. and the means to mm. occupy that way of being. Mm. Um, but actually it's a way of being that isn't just about kind of working out what the universe is made out of. Um, it's, it's a way of being that if you're curious and you can ask questions, then it's about addressing that to everyday life. Like if you're having a, a health issue and you need to ask questions of your doctor or your landlord is kind of not doing what you need. It's, 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 um, it's a way of, it's a way of progressing through, uh, challenges, mm. um, that applies to absolutely everything. Um, and it should be available to everyone and yet it's not and that's to do with inequalities of education and all of the complex things that I I'm nowhere near kind of expert enough to unpick but I can just kind of notice and try and do a small thing in one city on the planet to address yeah I think that's such a valid point and you know here we are kind of sitting in a lovely park talking about curiosity and we're so fortunate to have the freedom of time and, and also headspace to not have to worry about where our next meal is going to come from or how to pay a rent. And I think you're absolutely right that those kind of funda- fundamental needs almost need have to be met before you can be gifted the time and the space to start thinking about questions which might not have useful answers. And it's almost like you have to create that space in order to be potentially unproductive or you have to be willing to try experiments that could fail for a kind of, for a period of time at least. And that I think is, is really not achievable for people who are really kind of living on the, on the edge of, of, of the poverty line or have a family of five kids to, to feed and, and all those things. So I, no, I completely agree. Um, 
And so just to wrap up this very non-linear and wide-ranging <laughs> conversation, uh, we've been talking a lot about a lot about questions themselves. And the the question that I usually like to end these interviews with is kind of borrowed from from a real K quote. And it's what are the questions that you feel like you're living your way into the answers to at the moment through your work and through your life? You can take your time. That is literally the hardest question I've been asked in a long time. Um, I suppose the question that I am kind of exploring the most at the moment is is part of what we were just talking about, which is how do we how do we reposition curiosity itself to be valued and something that everyone can have the time to get involved with um and i think it's a massively naive question in some ways because the answer is so complex um but there's also nothing wrong with a naive question because sometimes it gets you to interesting places but yeah it's about it's a really big existential question about where are we at in society at the moment and how do we how do we connect to kind of shape better futures for everybody rather than just for some people and that is that is the main preoccupation so i haven't formulated that in a single question and that's actually what i need to do <laughs> um and it's kind of it's kind of what the the mission this new mission of we the curious where i work is about which is how do we create a culture of curiosity um so that really is the question mm. how do we or what if we build a culture of curiosity together where does it take us this is so wonderfully meta <laughs> but that's that's a great answer and for people who are listening and intrigued to learn more about you and your work both in the virtual and physical world where can people find you you can find me, well, it's less about me and it's more about the whole gang. So um, www.wethecurious.org um, is where loads of question asking and experimenting is happening. So if you're interested in that, check out the website, ask questions, come and volunteer with us, um, kick and poke what we're doing, feedback. That's really exciting. Um, I've got my own website, outofyourmind.london, um, where you can see all the zigzags um, <laughs> and some of the stuff that I'm thinking about um and there are a whole host of amazing thinkers out there on curiosity um amazing books by ian leslie mario livio um great thinkers that have influenced me in terms of mentors like bo lotto who's a neuroscientist who's talked a lot about what investigates perception and kind of living in uncertainty and how science is kind of a way of being you should check out his ted talk which is amazing um there's a whole list of people um but those are the main virtual spaces and you can find me somewhere between Bristol and London probably mostly on the M4 <laughs> <laughs> that's perfect and for people listening I will try and put as much of that in the show notes as possible um, so thank you very much this has been this has been amazing brilliant <laughs> thank you let's call it a wrap the question that I'd love to leave you with to take into your day is this what are some of the enemies to curiosity in your life? And how might we nudge others to take it more seriously? 
Share any thoughts on Twitter or Instagram tagging me, Johnny M1LLER. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. It would mean a lot to me if you could take a few seconds to open up your podcast app and give Curious Humans a shiny five-star rating. This not only helps more people to find it, but it will help me to get more awesome guests in the future. And if you're not already subscribed, then the Curious Humans newsletter is where I share monthly morsels of interestingness and podcast updates. You can sign up for that at johnny.life. That's J-O-N-N-Y dot life. All right. Thanks for listening. And here's a preview of what to expect in the next episode. And I was sort of part artist, performer, night DJing, and then part mm. trying to kind of find the commercial way in, in the industry as well. So I worked in, you know, for labels and distribution, and then I started trying to build a label up myself and a sound design business and a music syncing business. And sort of, so I was kind of like, you know, had these two dimensions, performer and kind of entrepreneur.